morning, all. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know me, I'm Luke. I'm uh, one of the elders here. Uh, that means a number of things. One of the things it meant was receiving a copy of the Midlife book that Graham talked about recently. So, uh, another thing means the privilege of being able to come and share from God's Word here this morning. Um, and it is a privilege and a responsibility, and uh, one which I recognise. So, um, let me pray that uh, God will use uh, these words today. Lord God, thank you for thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for um, bringing us into this place together, bringing us uh, here to hear from you. And uh, Lord, I pray that that is what what happens that we hear from you. Uh, by your Holy Spirit, by your um, yeah, your wonderful goodness, Lord, will you speak to us through these words um, and uh, remove anything which isn't from you and settle all that comes from you on our hearts and on our minds. Amen. So we are taking a break from our studies of the book of Hosea for the next few weeks. Uh, and today we start out our passion series as we begin to turn our attention to Easter and prepare our hearts and our minds contemplating what is surely the most pivotal moment in all of eternity. Um, and we're looking today at these uh, first few verses of Hebrews chapter 12. They of course begin, as we've just uh, heard from Kate, they begin with the word, therefore. Uh, and so we're signposted to what's come before. We can't ignore what's come before. And that was chapter 11, unsurprisingly. Um, which uh, famous chapter, um, talking about historical characters, characters from history who demonstrated their faith in God by living their lives, looking forward to a future which was going to come beyond those lives that they lived beyond their experience here on earth. They're called the heroes of faith. It's a chapter dealing with these heroes, heroic acts of faith, from people looking beyond their lives. So we're told about Abraham in chapter 11, who it, uh, it says lived in tents as a stranger in a foreign country, all while looking forward to a city whose architect and builder was God. We hear about Abraham's wife, Sarah, we hear about Rahab, Moses, Gideon, Samson, David. And at the end of chapter 11, we're told about these people that these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, that only together with us would they be made perfect. And so it is we come to these verses in verse 12 and the pierced the resistance when we turn to consider the one who made their faith perfect and complete, Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. We come away from looking at those who were faithfully waiting to be made perfect, and we fix our eyes on the perfecter of faith, Jesus Christ, the one who makes the imperfect perfect. Jesus, who we're told is the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I'm afraid I've got a very basic PowerPoint. None of the uh, 
trendy photo that Tom introduces us. Um, but um, I hope it, was, it will at least signpost us through the sermon and let you know how far away from the end you are. So um, uh, bear with me. We'll also be moving around the Bible quite a bit. So uh, you might want to have the Bibles uh, or your phones ready to ac access that. But we'll be looking at three uh, subheadings from this passage today. The what, the why, and the what now. The what, the why, and the what now. So let's start with the what. Jesus, we're told here, endured the cross, scorning its shame. And we've already focused on this by sharing communion, reminding ourselves of his broken body and his blood shed on that cross. We need to be careful, don't we, of becoming inured to these things. We talk in this context in church in a way which we don't talk anywhere else about broken bodies and shed blood. But Jesus' body really was broken. His flesh really was ripped apart, causing blood actually to pour out. These were the physical realities that enduring the cross meant for Jesus. This was what he experienced in enduring the cross. We've had the Mark drama here several times, haven't we? And one of the most powerful uh, aspects of, of that drama when we have it here is seeing that person who plays Jesus experiencing the agony and pain and we sense in a way which we can blithely ride over when reading words that pain, that agony, the physical human agony Jesus endured as his life ebbed away. Um, you may have seen the, uh, the Passion of Christ. It was a film 10, 20 years ago, I think now, but people famously, um, uh, it, it displayed the full horror of the human agony suffered by Jesus. People's reactions were mixed uh, when confronted with it. But we're encouraged here to fix our eyes on Jesus and him enduring the cross and there is a real physical pain and suffering which we must remember. When Jesus endured the cross, he experienced excruciating pain. And so this means for those of us in our church who are enduring physical excruciating pain today, you can be assured Jesus knows how it feels to feel pain. But to really understand what is meant by Jesus enduring the cross and scorning its shame, we have to go, of course, much further back than that agonising execution. We go right back to the beginning. And in the beginning was the Word. That's what John's Gospel tells us. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made, that has been made. The Word, it then goes on to say, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus existed before the world and the universe came into being. He was the Word of God through whom those things were made. And then he became a part of that very world which he had created. He became one of those very creatures which, whom he had created. 
When we consider Jesus enduring the cross, we must start with the fact that in order to do so, Jesus, the creator, became part of creation. Or, in the words of Philippians 2, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Jesus' endurance of the cross began when he, being holy God, existing outside of time and the universe, humbled himself to the extent that he became fully human, limited by a material body living in a physical world. But that willingly accepted reduction in status and position was just the beginning of enduring the cross for Jesus. Isaiah 53 tells us that the human he became had no beauty or majesty, that there was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him, and instead he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. And that means to those of us who feel rejected, who feel low self-esteem, who feel alone, we can be assured that Jesus knows exactly how that feels. And Jesus became this despised human, unremarkable in appearance, all the while knowing how his life on this earth was going to end. His endurance of the cross, his enduring the cross, lasted throughout his life because he knew that the sacrificial, painful death was always the plan, even the goal. A passage from Philippians 2 continues, um, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Knowing that all that was to come Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience. Uh, this year I signed up to receive a daily devotional email during Lent. And providentially, the email I received last Saturday, um, as I was thinking about today's sermon, ended with a reference to these verses, um, Hebrews chapter, and Hebrews 12, 2 in particular. And it encouraged me to read Genesis 22, verses 1 to 14, with my eyes fixed on Jesus, the Jesus we're talking about. So in Genesis 22, you may want to turn to it. It is uh, page 22 in the Church Bible. In Genesis 22, we have the passage where, which tells us about Abraham, the man called by God and by whom God would bless all nations through his heir, through his offspring. We have Abraham being told by God to take that heir, that offspring, Isaac, his son, whom he loved, the fulfillment of all his promises, God's promises to Abraham, take him and to sacrifice him in worship to God. On its own, this is a strange and challenging passage. But as a foreshadowing of the faith and sacrificial death of Jesus, it is an immensely powerful account. Uh, let's read it. Genesis 22, 
Sometimes later, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Just as Isaac walked up that mountain carrying the wood for the altar which was to be used for his own death, so Jesus walked his time on this earth at first metaphorically carrying the wood that would be used for his own death and sacrifice, knowing every time he upset the local leaders, exposing sin, healing sick, pointing to God, he was taking steps closer to his sacrificial death. But whereas Isaac naively asked where was the lamb who would be sacrificed and was told that God would provide, Jesus knew, knew throughout that time that he was the lamb that was to be provided. He was the la going to be the sacrifice. Jesus did this obediently until the day he was no longer metaphorically carrying the wood that would kill him, but he literally carried the wooden death that would be the means of his, uh, sorry, the wooden cross that would be the means of his death and his sacrifice on his back. And this means that for those of us here who are feeling weighed down with responsibility and the weight of life, we can be assured that Jesus knows how we feel. And so I hope that this establishes that the line in our passage which says, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, though it's only six words, covers an immense amount. For Jesus, enduring the cross meant leaving heaven, 
It meant becoming part of the creation which he himself had made. It meant being rejected and despised. It meant carrying the instrument of his death and it meant a painful, shameful, public execution. Was this easy for Jesus? Well, look at him in the Garden of Gethsemane and you know it was not. Luke's Gospel tells us that the night before his murder, knowing what was going to come, Jesus was in anguish. Sweat was dropping like blood to the ground and he was asking his father if there was any other way. And this means that for those of us who are finding life hard, those who are struggling to obey, when they know what, that obeying will be painful and costly, we can be assured Jesus knows how we are feeling. So Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. Why? Well, the verse tells us it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. What was that joy? The verse goes on to give us a partial answer when it says, for the joy set before him he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Set before Jesus was the joy of knowing that when he had endured the cross, he would be sat down at his Father's right hand at the throne of God. The verses we've been looking at this, uh, in Philippians 2 help us to understand this more clearly. As we read, Jesus, being in very nature God, made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant in human likeness, humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then reading on it says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every other name. Jesus was obedient even to death on a cross, and therefore God exalted him to the highest place. John Piper, describing these verses, explains, the word therefore means his obedience unto death was the reason God exalted Christ and gave him the glory he had with the Father before creation. The death of Jesus was the means by which he regained his place of glory with the Father and came into the fullness of his own everlasting joy. So the joy which propelled Jesus through his endurance of the cross and all the horror and rejection that that involved was the prospect that having been obedient, he would be exalted and reunited with his Father in glory. But wait. We've already read and said that Jesus was there at the beginning. He was God and he was with God. He had that perfect unity with his Father before he endured the cross. Why did Jesus obediently humble himself to the extent of becoming human and enduring the pain of the cross only in order to, as Piper put it, regain the place of glory he had himself had given up? Why lose that unity and glory in the first place if it would involve such pain and anguish to get it back? Well, the answer, of course, is that Jesus wanted to share this joy with us. He wanted us to be the partakers of his joy. 
He said so the night before he was killed. He said, Father, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm in, still in the world, so that they, his disciples, may have the full measure of my joy within them. But how can we, sinful, selfish, just as Kate described, just as Paul described, unable to do what, even the good we want to do, how can we know the joy of being united with a holy God in glory? How can we, who are so slow to forgive, so stingy in our affections, share in the perfect love that exists between God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Only because Jesus obediently endured the cross. It was only by Jesus obediently enduring the cross that we can be partakers in the joy that was set before him. And this brings us to the worst aspect of what enduring the cross meant for Jesus. Because when Jesus was on that cross... The sky went dark for three hours as, as he hung dying. At the end of which, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Enduring the cross meant Jesus be being a propitiation for the sin of you and me, which means it meant him becoming the sacrifice on which all of God's righteous anger at sin and all of divine justice was directed. Enduring the cross meant Jesus soaking up and receiving all of that anger and punishment for our wrongdoing from his Father onto him. For Jesus, it meant for the first time in eternity being separated from God. And why did Jesus endure this? for the joy set before him of being raised into glory, being reunited with his Father, and this time, bringing us with him. Why would Jesus want us, rebellious, arrogant, ambivalent us, to partake in such joy with him? Why should we, in our squabbling insignificance in the corner of Reading, share in the joy of being in the throne room, the ruler and creator of the universe only through the undeserved grace of God. Jesus wanted us to share in that joy because Jesus loves us. Why does he love us? Because he loves us. In Hebrews chapter 2 there's a section which mirrors this uh, passage from chapter 12. Hebrews ch chapter 2 is at page 1202 of the Bible. Uh, and it explains how we get to share in the joy that was set before Jesus. It's a glorious passage. Uh, Hebrews 2 verses 9 to 11. They say, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy 
and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. By the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for everyone. By the grace of God, Jesus, when he suffered and died, makes us holy. And now by Jesus, the one who makes people holy. Uh, sorry, by both Jesus, the one who makes people holy, and us who are being made holy, well, we're both part of the same family. And Jesus looks at us in this room, in your room, looks at us and calls us brothers and sisters. Isn't that absolutely mind-blowing? Well, that is the gospel. That is the good news. That is the glorious gospel. We are utterly undeserving. We are entirely unable to make ourselves holy or to meet our own desire for significance. And yet, by the grace of God, we are brought into the family of God because of Jesus enduring the cross and scorning its shame. Why did Jesus endure the cross and all its shame? For the joy of being glorified by his Father, crowned with glory and honour, exalted to the highest place, seated in the throne room of God, and the joy of bringing us with him as his brothers and sisters. So what now? What do we do with this amazing, amazing truth? What does it mean for us now? Well, first of all, we check ourselves. Is this talking about us? Is this talking about you? I've been describing we and us. I've been t using terms we and us, saying we're brought into the family of God. Is that talking about you? This may be the first time you've heard the gospel. It may be the thousandth time. Either way, hearing the gospel is not enough for it to be effective for you. Coming to church, trying to behave better, ineffective as it is, as we know, as we've described, they're not going to be enough to make the gospel effective for you. You must receive this gospel, this great news, by faith. Romans 3 explains it like this in verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a propitiation through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. We started by looking back at chapter 11 and people who described as the heroes of faith. They all were believing in God and looking for a future which wouldn't be realised in their lifetime. And that must be you. You must place your faith in Jesus. Receive the promise of Jesus. Receive this amazing gospel that through you, though you are thoroughly undeserving, you are utterly loved by God. And in Jesus, through Jesus' obedience, you are brought into his glorious family. You must receive this and put your faith in it. Believe this and live for that future. But for those 
who recognise the we and the us include themselves, who have put their faith in Jesus, who are trusting in him and only him, well, we know, we know that uh, despite the glorious gospel, we find ourselves so uh, regularly being entangled by sin, growing weary and losing heart. And that's why this passage speaks to us. Because it tells us to throw us everything that hinders and the sin which so easily entangles and encourages us to run with perseverance the race which has been marked out, marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, endured the cross of scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of God now. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Despite the glory of the gospel, notwithstanding the wonderful truth of what Jesus has done for us through his obedient endurance, and despite the significance of our place in the family of, God, uh, of the creator God, we still find ourselves entangled with the daily concerns of this life, growing weary, losing heart. We do live between the ages. Jesus has sat down at the throne of God and in one sense we are united with him there, but in another real sense we are here in those daily struggles of life. We're in the now and not yet. We're living in frail bodies. We're living in a fallen world. If that feels like something to be endured, consider him. Fix your eyes on him. Remember the joy that is set before you, the joy that is to come. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves of the gospel. In fact, always we need to remind ourselves of the gospel. We need to remember Jesus, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that the grace, by the grace of God he might taste death for us, so that he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. That's what we fix our eyes on. That's what we hope in. That's what we consider. We fix our eyes on the gospel and we take time to consider it so we don't lose heart. So we thank God for all the things which he has put in place, he has ordained to draw our minds and our attention and our eyes back onto him, back onto Jesus. Thank God for the physical reminder which we've experienced already this morning in communion where we can literally taste and see that God is good. Thank God for Sundays, for an opportunity, a God-designed day of rest, where we can gather together, get off that merry-go-round of work, and turn our gaze heavenward. Why would we not take advantage of that? Thank God for the church, for this community, in which we can remind one another of this gospel, where we can fit, turn our, one another's eyes back onto God and remind each other of what our Saviour's done for us. Thank God for these tides and seasons of the year, for Lent, for an opportunity to focus our minds on this act, amazing act of obedience and sacrifice of Jesus. For Easter, when we get to celebrate his death and his resurrection. 
Thank God for the provision of growth groups where we can gather together as friends uh, and aware of one another's struggles and uh, difficulties, turn one another's eyes back onto Jesus. Thank God for prayer, for the people who come down this morning uh, at the end of the service, ready to pray, ready to turn our eyes and our minds back onto God. All these things God has set in place to help us, to encourage us to turn our attention back on to the truth that Jesus has achieved for us. But thank God most of all for the Holy Spirit whom he has left with us, turning his spotlight on Jesus, shining on the light on all that Jesus has achieved when Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame for the joy set before him. So let us take this opportunity, another Sunday, another week, an opportunity again to remind ourselves, to fix our eyes on Jesus, to consider him and all he has achieved through his obedient suffering and endurance. Let us consider him so that we do not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your obedient sacrifice. Thank you that you did that despite all that it would involve for you, all the pain and difficulty that it would bring upon you. That you did that despite the fact it would involve being separated from your Father for the only time in eternity. And you did that because you love us. You did that because you want us to partake and share in that joy that was set before you. Lord God, as we go away today, may we remember that. May we focus on that. Lord, will you fix our eyes on that and on our future with the rest of our family in heaven. Amen.